So the, um, the next presentation uh, is by Tim Wilkin. Tim is a professor of medicine at Cornell. I guess give you promotion, associate, whatever. Um, but um, I, I'm, some of you may be aware that in the last few years, uh, ISUSA as a nonprofit has taken over the management of CROI, of the retrovirus uh, meeting. That's why we always have a feature of CROI at this meeting. And uh, uh, Tim is a good one to talk about that. Um, I think Tim was also consulted by Trump to help him differentiate HIV from HPV. Is that right? <laughs> Tim. Yes. My career is the overlapping Venn diagram of those two infections. Okay, so we're going to talk about CROI, an update from CROI. It's great to be back in Chicago. I lived here for three years for my internal medicine residency at University of Chicago. I love this city. Um, here are my disclosures, ha, huh. it's really terribly exciting, there you go. Okay, and there are a number of resources for CROI, uh, ISUSA also runs that conference and so they've really made it very accessible, there's searchable abstracts, you can see all of the webcasts, it's all available online. Um, here are our learning objectives. Okay, we're first gonna start with antiretroviral treatment. Um, there really weren't uh, very many exciting presentations at CROI about antiretroviral treatment. The news that you all know, we have an, an incredible array of options to treat our patients. A new one is Bictegravir, uh, emtricitabine, tenofovir, alafenamide. Um, so this study uh, is a practical study. It looks at people that are taking uh, dolutegravir, vacavir, 3TC and randomize them to either continue that uh, regimen or switch to the newer Bictegravir regimen. And uh, really, both groups did exceptionally well. The main reason people did not do well is they just really didn't show up for the primary endpoint visits. So nearly everybody was biologically suppressed and really not many major differences between the two groups uh, over the year. Dr. Aaron, I'll talk about this a little bit more. Um, an exciting early phase compound that was uh, discussed is this tri-specific monoclonal antibody, and it's going to be developed hopefully for both prevention and treatment. And what makes it interesting is that there are actually three separate binding sites in this engineered antibody. Um, if you follow the broadly neutralizing antibodies, one problem with them is that they don't really always have 100% breadth or aren't always potent. But this, uh, at least in vitro, this antibody looks very exciting. Uh, so the data that they presented for prevention was in a SHIV challenge model. And uh, you can see that in two other broadly neutralizing antibodies groups, uh, two other groups of um, uh, primates that received the broadly neutralizing antibodies, they had breakthrough infections where they didn't see that in this uh, with this tri-specific antibodies. So the ACTG uh, will be conducting the first in human studies later this year to look at the, uh, whether this has some, whether it's safe and has some antiviral activity in people. Um, so additional studies on strategies. Uh, this was a large clinical trial that was really aimed, that uh, was trying to uh, test several strategies to reduce early mortality associated with, um, or early mortality in people initiating antiretroviral therapy at very low CD4 counts. So the, the analysis that they presented was uh, 
whether the addition of 12 weeks of raltegravir to the standard NNRTI-based regimen would improve outcomes. So in short, there was really no difference between the immortality between the groups. A lingering concern, however, is um, immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome. So one thought with um, integrase inhibitors is that they drive down the viral load very quickly, and that could put people at risk for iris. Um, fortunately, this study found that there was no increase in iris associated with, um, the, with raltegravir use. They were able to reduce iris by having an extended prophylaxis against several uh, infections. I'm not sure that we can apply that here, but um, really it does go speak to the safety of initiating integrase inhibitors in people with advanced immunosuppression. Um, a major strategy for prevention is really uh, rapid initiation of antiretroviral therapy. So the first study we'll talk about was from uh, San Francisco, and this looked at their data over the last few years. And the Department of Public Health had made a very concerted effort to gather all of the HIV testers and treaters together and come to a group consensus to rapidly initiate people uh, when newly diagnosed with HIV. So they provided comprehensive education of providers and clinics and worked out the mechanisms to initiate, uh, to engage people in care rapidly and initiate ART rapidly. And so what you can see over time is that they were able to get people uh, rapidly initiated in ART. So they dramatically reduce uh, the time from the first care visit to ART initiation and achieve the goal of initiating the same day. Uh, I think the overall result that uh, is most meaningful is that uh, in 2013, it took uh, 130 days from diagnosis to achieving an undetectable viral load or suppressed viral load, and they were able to reduce that by 50%. So some of that was a rapid initiation of ART. Some of that is using integrase inhibitors, but really a, a, a big impact was made. Um, a study that was very fascinating was conducted in Lesotho, that's the, the small country contained within South Africa. And what they did was they um, really moved out of the clinic-based testing to home-based HIV testing. And so they actually approached over 6,500 households and tested um, over 11,000 people and diagnosed 441 people with HIV. And so what they randomized those people to was either starting ART in the home versus uh, being referred to the clinic and engaged in the local ART clinic. So their outcomes were whether or not the person was linked to care, so actually came to the clinic uh, within three months, and then whether they were virally suppressed a year later. Um, so they were able to engage people in care and get them, and people were more likely to be virally suppressed if they started ART at home. Um, however, you can still see that half of people are not virally suppressed, suggesting that we, they perhaps need some additional strategies to get people engaged and adherent to ART. So this strategy of test and treat on rapid initiation of ART is being done you know, across the country and especially in uh, more progressive municipalities. Um, <laughs> So an interesting study um, was really looking at the transition for um, people living with HIV who are incarcerated to uh, their out, um, after their release to their uh, clinic care. 
And so this enrolled uh, incarcerated individuals who were either um, incarcerated for or that either had opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder in two separate trials. And they randomized them to either receiving injectable naltrexone to treat these disorders or not, and then looked at their HIV outcomes after they were uh, released from um, prison. And they, it's kind of small studies, but there's a good suggestion that it did improve biologic outcomes. So uh, this may be a strategy that uh, should be investigated. Um, so one thing you'll hear about later is the two drug regimens. So there's a lot of interest in sort of reducing the number of medications. Perhaps we can treat people with just two drugs. And generally, those strategies use lamivudine or emtricitabine and uh, a second drug. So this was a study, uh, retrospective study of a database that looked at the outcomes of people starting two-drug therapy or switching to a two-drug regimen. And what was interesting is they went and looked at the history of resistance and actually divided this group into those that had an M184B mutation that confers resistance to lamivudine and emtricitabine and those that did not. And results that were very surprising to me is that uh, it didn't seem to dramatically impact uh, outcomes. So whether or not people had M184V, they still had good biologic suppression. So I'm not recommending that you take people with M184V and put them on a two-drug regimen. What I think this is very helpful for is that if someone has a history of M184V, you can feel pretty confident of using um, a tenofovir uh, a single tablet regimen or a, a, a regimen that a three drug regimen that it contains tenofovir and a and a third drug, and even though they're resistant to or they have virus that's resistant to lamivudine, you should still get good outcomes with that that simple regimen. Um, so one cure study I wanted to bring up. Uh, this was a study in primates looking at a combination of TLR seven agonists and broadly neutralizing antibodies. Um, Oh, sorry. <laughs> and um, so uh, what, what it, the study did is it took uh, monkeys that were an acute, infected them with the CHIV virus and then treated them with antiretroviral therapy within several days of um, infection. And so treated them for two years, so uh, very small reservoir. And then uh, randomized them to put them in four different groups. One was no treatment, one was TLR7 agonist alone, BNAB alone, and then the combination. And uh, so the monkeys were treated with these randomized uh, strategy, and then their ART was stopped, and they looked at the time to rebound. Uh, sort of a design that is being used for a number of uh, HIV cure studies. And what they found was that uh, just using TLR7 alone or the BNABs, you, it didn't impact dramatically the time to rebound. But really, the combination seemed to uh, delay rebound. And in fact, there were a group of monkeys that, uh, in fact, didn't rebound. And beyond that, they took uh, cells from the, these monkeys and tried to infect other monkeys and were unable to infect other monkeys. And so just to remind you, the TLR7 is... Uh, uh, is a, activates HIV. So if you think of a kick and kill, that's the kick to kick the reservoir to activate it. And the BNABs will be able to target those infected cells and hopefully clear them. At least that's the theory. So this is a promising strategy and something that I would expect would move forward uh, in human studies at some point. 
Okay, so next we're gonna move on to prep. Um, so this was a very uh, interesting presentation from Australia. So Australia is great in so many ways. They have, you know, 100% HPV vaccination rates of uh, boys and girls. You know, they're eliminated warts and a lot of HPV disease. However, they're kind of slow to adopt PrEP. And so really PrEP was not widely available in New South Wales. So they uh, introduced PrEP in a structured way through this clinical study. Uh, and they, it, it went gangbusters. So they were originally planned to enroll 3,700 MSM and they ended up enrolling like I think seven or 8,000 and uh, very quickly. And so what they did was they looked at the rates of HIV transmission in the community over time. And what they found was that among people receiving PrEP, there were only two HIV seroconversions documented and both were actually off PrEP at the time. So similar to other studies that we have seen. But the interesting part was they looked at the overall transmission rate and, and found a 32% reduction in the community associated with PrEP. So we can't say that it was exactly causal, but it's a, a, a very uh, good impact to see. Um, so this was a study, we're gonna do a series of uh, uh, primate challenge models to test investigative or investigational PrEP strategies. Um, they, these investigators from the CDC prevent, uh, presented on a new model, which is actually looking for penile transmission. So we know that um, Tenofovir FTC PrEP works for prevention of um, HIV in men that are exposed to HIV through um, vaginal sex based on clinical trials, but we really didn't have a uh, primate model of this. So they developed a, a model and actually validated that um, it TDF-FTC prevents uh, infection in this model. Um, what was new is that they looked at this model for injectable cabotegravir. So there are studies, I'm sure, enrolling in Chicago, HPTN-083, looking at long-acting cabotegravir for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. There's another study that will look at prevention in young women in um, sub-Saharan Africa and I think other countries. But I don't believe that they have planned studies for um, heterosexual men in preventing transmission. So this animal model is very important and it showed that in the injectable cabotegravir uh, was highly efficacious in this model to prevent new um, infection. Okay, an additional model uh, looked at, or additional study looked at FTC-TAF for, for prevention against vaginal infection. Um, so there's a large study conducted by Gilead uh, called the DISCOVER trial that's fully enrolled that's testing whether tenofovir alafenamide emtricitabine is as effective as TDF-FTC for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. So that's fully enrolled and may have results later this year or next year. Um, so this is looking at uh, FTC-TAF for prevention of vaginal SHIV infection and found that it was highly efficacious uh, in this model. Um, a very exciting drug that Dr. Aaron I'll talk to you more about later is MK8591. So this is a, I have to pause and go very slowly, nucleoside reverse transcription transcription translocation inhibitor. So it's sort of like an NRTI, but actually has an added benefit of preventing translocation as, as, the, uh, as the reverse transcriptase is reading the RNA and making DNA. Um, so this is an incredibly potent drug. And um, 
this this study looked at its use for pre-exposure prophylaxis in a, a SHIB model, primate model. And um, at the initial doses, the monkeys were completely protected, and then they dose-reduced and had to dose-reduce significantly to be able to have any breakthrough infections. And so based on this, they uh, estimated a a target concentration for uh, efficacy for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, and this is not a typo. They believe that to be achievable with 250 micrograms given orally weekly. So a once weekly or perhaps even once monthly oral dose for PrEP that could be studied in the future. Okay. So next, we're going to talk about tuberculosis. So you got some uh, discussion of that earlier. Uh, so we have an ARS question. So which statement is true regarding ART interactions with rifampin-based tuberculosis treatment? Is it that dolutegravir concentrations are not appreciably changed by rifampin co-administration? Rifampin lowers TAF concentrations intracellularly uh, to levels precluding co-administration. Um, of course, TAF doesn't get intracellular, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so that's a little bit written incorrectly. But the twice-daily dolutegravir plus NRTIs results in reasonable biologic outcomes in patients receiving rifampin, or that twice-daily dosing of bictegravir overcomes PK interaction with rifampin to allow co-administration. Which of those is true? Oh, the big screen. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, it's wordy. <laughs> okay. popular answer was correct. So dolutegravir concentrations are changed by rifampin. So this is important to know that if you're co-administering, you need to give the dolutegravir twice daily. Um, so rifampin does lower tenofovir uh, diphosphate intracellular levels um, when given uh, with TAF administration. So um, however, as we'll see in just a minute, the levels are lowered, but they're still markedly higher than the levels you see with TDF. So they're really predicted to be efficacious, so we don't have to worry about that interaction. Uh, we'll review a study that shows that, uh, that suggests that twice daily dolutegravir plus NRTIs is a reasonable option for people that are receiving rifampin based TB treatment. Um, and we'll also learn that twice daily dosing of bictegravir does not overcome the PK interaction. Uh, with rifampin to allow co-administration. So this is one difference between dolutegravir and bictegravir. Okay, but first we're going to talk about a study that looks at um, uh, a new treatment for latent tuberculosis. Uh, so this was a study of people that were with latent tuberculosis and HIV infection uh, that were randomized to either receive a standard uh, treatment of daily isoniazid for nine months or daily isoniazid and rifapentine for one month, a one-month treatment course. And so people were randomized to that, they received the treatment, and then were followed over time for uh, tuberculosis. And what they found was that there was no difference in the, in the subsequent rates of tuberculosis, suggesting that the daily isoniazid rifapentine was non-inferior 
to isoniazid. And there was some additional data that suggested that it was safer and people were more likely to complete the therapy, which seems obvious if it's just given for a month instead of nine months. The big question mark that we have is that there's really not data on how to give rifapentine with um, integrase inhibitors. So this would be difficult to use for many of our patients. Okay, so some of the PK interactions. So uh, this is the intracellular uh, tenofovir diphosphate levels with just TAF FTC alone. And you can see there is a reduction with, uh, with the addition of rifampin, a 36% reduction. But to give you some context over here, this is the levels with TAF and rifampin, and this is TDF alone, so much higher concentration. So it's not thought, this drug-drug interaction is not thought to be clinically significant. Okay, so this is Bictegravir FTC TAF with rifampin. So remember, we said that dolutegravir can be given twice daily with rifampin. It seems to have reasonable outcomes. So this was the study presented by Gilead, that looked at the, that tried to overcome the expected PK interaction between these drugs. However, um, they did, uh, they were able to get reasonable concentrations, but if you look at these TROP concentrations, um, there were uh, several of the people, uh, it, it would be expected that several or a small subset would have TROP concentrations low enough that would have put them at risk for the development perhaps of resistance. Um, so uh, we don't have any clinical data on, on these two together, but the, the company concluded that they should not be co-administered. So I don't think we'll see any additional studies. Okay, there was a study that looked at the outcomes of HIV treatment and for people receiving tuber or, um, treatment for tuberculosis. So these were, people were randomized uh, to two groups either receiving dolutegravir twice daily plus two NRTIs or efavirenz-based uh, treatment. So currently, uh, efavirenz-based treatment is the standard for uh, HIV treatment when co-administered with um, rifampin-based tuberculosis treatment. So what they found was that the outcomes with the dolutegravir seemed reasonable. So 81% had virologic success at week 24, uh, and there were 89% in the efavirenz group. The study wasn't really designed to compare the two groups. It just didn't have that robust sample size. Um, so it suggests that it's a reasonable strategy uh, to use. And again, I'm not sure we're going to have a tremendous amount of additional data. They're going to present out to 48 weeks to see what the longer-term outcomes are. But this suggests that this is a regional approach for treating HIV in the setting of tuberculosis. Okay, um, acute hepatitis C. There were a few presentations uh, about this, but first we'll have an ARS question. So which is true about uh, MSM living with HIV, you just diagnosed with acute hepatitis C infection. Which of these is true? Um, spontaneous clearance will happen most of the time, so treatment should not be considered. Um, if the HCV viral load does not decline two logs over four weeks, then spontaneous resolution is unlikely. Viral relapse from failure of HCV treatment occurs commonly in this population. Spontaneous clear, clearance is more likely if the patient is male. Which of those is correct?
Yeah. Despite the lots of negatives and the reverse, you still got it. Okay. Um, so yes, so spontaneous clearance, we'll learn, actually happens infrequently, uh, less frequently than was thought before. Um, and uh, viral relapse uh, from failure of ACV treatment occur is, is very rare. So people respond uh, incredibly well to the treatment with DAAs for acute HCV. However, that population is at risk for reinfection, as we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and uh, spontaneous clearance is not more likely if the patient is male. Uh, so you can follow the viral load over a short period of time, and if there really doesn't seem to be a change, then you can feel very, very confident that the patient is not <coughs> going to spontaneously clear hepatitis C. Okay. Um, so this was a study that really looked at hepatitis C treatment as prevention. So this was done in the Swiss HIV uh, cohort study. And so they had three phases. So in phase A, they uh, systematically screened for both acute and chronic hepatitis C across their cohort. In phase B, they treated everyone. And like I said before, people have great response to treatment. 99.5% were cured of their hepatitis C. And then in phase C, they rescreened the population. And so what they found was that, not surprisingly, the chronic infections decreased dramatically when you treated everyone. That makes perfect sense. What was very interesting is that the number of acute or incident hepatitis C infections also declined by 50%. So the broad treatment of this cohort seemed to impact the risk on the population level of acquiring hepatitis C. Um, there were additional studies that looked at outcomes with DAAs. There was an eight-week regimen of grosoprevir and elbosphere to treat acute hepatitis C. Uh, most of these patients were, in fact, living with HIV. Um, there was only one failure, a relapse of infection. However, there were three people that were infected with a new hepatitis, uh, a new strain of hepatitis C. Um, in addition, there was a cohort study presented of acute hepatitis C, and they um, found that spontaneous clearance of hepatitis C only occurred in 12%. So it is a small, um, it is unlikely to clear. And it was predicted, clearance was predicted by a two-log decline in HCV RNA over four weeks. Um, and they did, uh, ex did find that 17% of the population was reinfected with hepatitis C, suggesting that this we need strategies to keep additional strategies to keep people uh, uh, clear of hepatitis C. So all of these data together, I think, support a universal treatment of acute hepatitis C to impact uh, the epidemic. Um, the only reason we have any discussion about it, obviously, is because of the cost of the drugs. But uh, scientifically, um, it, it, it probably would make an impact on the epidemic. Okay, we're gonna talk about a few metabolic complications. Um, so many of our patients are switching or have switched from tenofovir dysproxyl fumarate to tenofovir allothenamide because of the benefits on the kidneys, but also the benefits on the bone, uh, on bone density. So um, this study looked at um, pooled clinical trials um, of patients making the switch from TDF to TAF. And what they asked was, is that strategy alone enough to treat osteoporosis, or what's the additive benefit of bisphosphonates in this situation? And they got sort of a mixed answer. So when you look at changes in uh, improvements in bone density in the hip, 
uh, there really didn't seem to be an additive benefit for bisphosphonates over just making the switch from TDF to TAF. However, in the spine, there did appear to be additional benefit for giving a bisphosphonate uh, on top of the switch from TDF to TAF. And so the authors concluded that it would be reasonable to uh, use a sequential strategy. So if you have somebody with osteoporosis uh, and you're making on TDF, make the switch to TAF, and perhaps then after a year or two, you could rescreen and see if they needed bisphosphonate therapy at that time. Okay, this is a large uh, analysis of the VA database um, that was aimed to look at the effect of statins on cancer. So this is a matched pair analysis. So they use very sophisticated techniques to match for as much as possible uh, and look at the um, match pairs of people exposed or using statins to those who did not use statins and looked at the uh, impact on cancer diagnoses. And what they found overall was that there was a... Um, a 40% reduction in cancer associated with statin use, quite a remarkable um, estimate. Um, and then if you look in people with HIV, there was a similar, perhaps even slightly higher uh, estimate of the impact of statin use. Um, and it seemed to apply both to AIDS-defining cancers as well as non-AIDS-defining cancer. And so uh, for an area of special interest to me, the virus-related cancers, there seemed to be a kind of uniform association with uh, less uh, likelihood of uh, diagnosis of virus-related cancers associated with statin use. So the huge caveat to this is it's not a randomized trial, and there's only so much that you can match and control for. So um, hopefully with the large reprieve study that's ongoing where people are randomized to statin versus not, perhaps we'll get a sense from that study whether the statins truly have uh, this impact on um, cancer risk. Okay, we'll end with a, um, a couple studies on maternal and child health. Um, the first one is looking at the drug-drug interactions between efavirenz and uh, vaginal ring hormonal contraceptions. And so on the left, you see in green the um, etonogestrel concentrations over 21 days of um, uh, women receiving the vaginal ring who are not on um, efavirenz or, or not on ART. Um, and this is the key hormone for the contraceptive, contraceptive efficacy. And you can see in efavirenz, there's a really quite a dramatic decline in these levels and suggesting that efficacy would be compromised. So these really should not be, uh, you should not rely on this contraception with, uh, for women receiving efavirenz. Uh, and highlights the benefits of integrase inhibitor therapies so you don't have to worry about many of these drug-drug uh, interactions. Okay, um, the last study is looking at treatment of latent tuberculosis in, during pregnancy. So pregnancy is a strong risk factor for reactivation of tuberculosis. So some of the World Health Organization guidelines recommend treatment during pregnancy. Uh, so the primary endpoint was looking at the safety of INH treatment during pregnancy from the maternal point of view. And um, the same adverse events occurred whether you treat it during pregnancy or afterwards. So really no significant difference. However, they found really marked uh, adverse outcomes Preg adverse pregnancy and birth outcomes. So uh, 
23% of the pregnancies for women who were randomized to receive isoniazid during pregnancy had an adverse pregnancy outcome compared to 17% of those who were randomized to receive uh, INH postpartum. And, um, and it really was across the different components of the pregnancy outcome. So this really suggests very strongly that uh, consideration be given to deferring treatment of latent tuberculosis latent tuberculosis until the postpartum period. Okay, so we talked about uh, several exciting uh, investigational HIV prevention methods, uh, a little bit about HIV cure, uh, the complications and the association of statins with the reduced cancer risk, uh, some data on co-infections, including universal treatment for acute hepatitis C in men who have sex with men, a lot of interesting stuff about tuberculosis and drug-drug interactions, and finally, the issue of maternal child health and the concern about INH treatment during pregnancy. Okay. All right. Thank you. Take over the podium here. Questions uh, can be brought up to the front. Um, First one, um, do you hear Yanni or Laurel? <laughs> we, my husband and daughter and I had an argument about it, and I think it's going to be a quick virus that just clears within a day or two. Um, and, and I think we'll hear more about HCV in the uh, injection drug users. Uh, maybe just comment on um, um, yeah, I don't think that there was much, uh, there weren't many other studies related to hepatitis C. I think like HIV, the uh, vast array of highly effective treatments, um, you know, are kind of diminishing newer studies. But all of the studies I saw in people with HIV supported the same treatments being used for HIV-infected populations as uninfected with great outcomes. So a question about uh, the the study in San Francisco, the RAPID study, um, do we know uh, whether that has any longer-term impacts on, uh, on retention and care? Um, no, I don't. I mean, I would expect those data to emerge. I mean, this is, as a concept, something that's just been implemented in the last few years. So we really don't have the longer-term um, outcomes. And I still don't think that we have all the data that we need about some of the short-term outcomes. Um, I've, in my clinical practice, I've noticed some people that are rapidly initiated and really still have trouble engaging in care. So the important thing to remember about the test and treat is that it has to be a package of interventions. It's not just getting an appointment and getting a prescription, but a package of uh, support services to really engage people in care. That's the key part. Um, to really allow the long-term outcomes. So I would expect the longer-term data to emerge. So there's a question about uh, insurance coverage of DEXA scans. Um, has that been a problem for you? Um, it doesn't seem to be a problem, but New York does not generalize to the rest of the country, so I'm sure there are a lot of problems. Are there problems here? In other parts. Are there problems here with DEXA scanning insurance? Um, Not, doesn't well, seem to be. It, yeah, the, one other thing, you can use the FRAX score, which is, you know, something you can just do based on history, although it, it's really not anywhere near as accurate as the DEXA scan. Great. Thanks, Tim.